Hi, Sam. All right, so I'm going to start by telling you the story of the egg carton. Well, that's great, because I guess one obvious question is why this podcast is called The Egg Carton. Well, yeah. Okay, so the story really is the classic innovation story. So let's start. Let's cast your mind back to the early 20th century to, of all places, Smithers, B.C. So if you've never been there, it's sort of middle to top of B.C., definitely quite a bit north, nestled right in the interior of those beautiful rocky mountains. A river runs through it, green valleys up to snowy peaks. It is a beautiful place. I've been there. So here we are. We're talking about 1910. And there was a newspaper publisher and a part-time inventor named Joseph Coyle. Well, one day he overhears a heated conversation between a hotel owner and a delivery man. And the argument, you guessed it, was over broken eggs. Of course, broken eggs. Well, okay, uh, when you deliver eggs, really, you're going to put all your eggs in one basket. And if you start thinking about packing eggs and the transportation back and then over these rockety, rickety roads, it's not a surprise that the breakage rates were really very high. And this is what the argument was about. And so Joseph, inspired by this argument, sees the challenge. How to improve the transportation of eggs. Well, he was in the paper trade, so he had access to lots of packaging material. And he developed this idea to fashion individual cushion slots for each egg in one box. Thus becoming the egg carton. Yes, the egg carton. So let me guess, he made loads of money and became an egg carton baron. What I've learned is innovation stories really have one of two endings. First, the inventor goes from success to success, achieving fame and wealth, and, you know, these days becoming a billionaire. Or the other side, which is the inventor kind of fades into obscurity, unrecognized, really, or unmonetized for his or her contribution. And we've learned that with Mr. Coyle, it seems that he has fallen in between. But what we do know is that Joseph Coyle is remembered in the Buckley Valley Museum in Smithers, B.C. for his contribution to the world. Wow, so that's the story of the egg carton, a Canadian innovation. And I guess that's why we gravitated to the story, because of its delightful simplicity. It's the egg carton, and perhaps because there's uh, the possibility of lots of cracking puns. <laughs> but just think of the impact of the egg carton for a second. Safer, reliable transportation and storage means that less families had to keep chickens for eggs. And egg production could be consolidated, ramped up, upscaled. And what you're touching on is a tension that innovation often brings. This exciting step forward about improving lives, no more frustration over broken eggs. But also, something truly innovative will also make something obsolete. And ways of doing things just gone and dusted. My name's uh, Eamon Salter, a professor of innovation at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. And uh, I do research on innovation and uh, how innovations come to market, where they come from, uh, and how organizations can manage the process to be more effective at developing uh, innovations. Since we're just getting going here, we thought it would be a good idea to speak to Professor Eamon Salter, who's going to tell us some more about innovation over Skype. Innovation is a broad um, category which involves the development of new products, processes, and services. It involves um, bringing this novelty into the economic system. It's often carried into the economic system by individuals or by uh, companies, and uh, it's a process fraught with uncertainty. It requires uh, a blend of, of luck, skill, and uh, persistence. 
and it's a great activity uh, in the sense that if you're successful in your innovation, it can uh, provide great rewards, but many people and many innovations do not get taken up and provide very little reward for the individuals who develop them. So we were trying to get to grips with innovation and how we'd like to explore it when we happened upon an expression that actually really carries our feeling about innovation. And it's a term you may have heard of. The term is creative destruction. Sure. The, the term creative destruction comes from the work of Joseph Schumpeter, who's the kind of um, godfather of the study of innovation and entrepreneurship. Schumpeter was an Austrian economist who uh, based a big part of his career in the United States at Harvard University. Schumpeter had this idea that the uh, entrepreneur was the key driving force of the economic system. And this process of bringing novelty to the economic system creates a kind of um, challenge for incumbents who tend to be conservative, according to Schumpeter. So existing companies tend to rest on their laurels. They have a well-established customer base. They make the same products every year. Somebody comes along and comes into a business with a different mentality, a different way of operating, a different type of product. And that creates uh, a competitive dynamic between the old and the new. And often it's the new that wins because the old is unable to change in order to confront the challenge of the new. So um, this is a, the kind of Schumpeterian story. The, ho the whole idea of Schumpeter is that we think of an economic system as a kind of um, stable entity. But what it, what it really is is a kind of uh, continuous process of change. Um, so new current firms are emerging all the time. And the existing set of firms that are here with us today, the great names of Apple and Microsoft, you know, in 10 years' time, may be gone. This is a process of creative destruction where new firms come up and take on and destroy the value of existing firms. So now that we have some idea of what innovation is, and Eamon's given us a really good explanation of what this term creative destruction means, I think that term really does a good job of describing what the process of innovation might look like. Yeah, and I think it also captures our mixed feelings about innovation as well. It's not an altogether straightforward process. But you know what? I think what we need to do now is just crack open our first innovation story. Oh, Sam, I bet that takes you back. Remember when you had your first child? Mine was born in England, but yours was born here in Toronto. Yes, he was. And you know, even before he was 30 minutes old, he'd already undergone a huge battery of genetic tests uh, as part of the newborn screening program of Ontario. Yeah, I think I know about that test. It tests for a whole host of extremely rare genetic disorders, ones that are one in two million chance. Yeah, that's it. But what if there were other tests? Like a test that could tell you some really practical stuff, such as whether your kid should eat less sodium in her diet, or she will need to eat more whole grains than the average person. What? Can I, can I know that? Um, do I want to know that? Let's find out. In today's episode... We're going to introduce you to a health research scientist, a dietitian, and a really, really old lady. We're going straight to the crossroads of nutrition and genetics research, nutrigenomics. We'll show you how it flips the old adage, you are what you eat, on its head. Our interest is in trying to apply that knowledge that's gained from the Human Genome Project, understanding all of that individual genetic variability to help us explain some of that individual differences in response to nutrition. That's Ahmed El-Sahemi. He holds a Canada Research Chair at the University of Toronto. He's also the founder and chief science officer of his own startup, Nutrigenomics, 
which offers personalized nutrition assessment for clients. We've known for a very long time that nutrition plays a huge role in overall health and wellness. That is undisputed. What is not clear is exactly what aspects of our nutrition uh, impacts our risk for developing these chronic diseases. Uh, we know, for example, that a prudent diet that is primarily vegetarian-based uh, and low in processed foods. All over the world, populations that consume such diets have a lower prevalence of just about every major chronic disease. But there are still some people who do follow such diets and do develop a disease. Clearly, there's some genetic difference that makes them unresponsive to such a prudent diet. And likewise, you have people like uh, Winston Churchill who drink every day and smoke a cigar and, and live to uh, you know, a decent age. Uh, so it's quite possible some people have, you know, they're genetically protected, if you will, to uh, the potential harms of some of these less prudent diets. So what's an example of genetic variability when it comes to our diet? Uh, caffeine is probably the best studied. It's the most widely consumed stimulant in the world. Uh, and coffee is, uh, certainly in North America, among adults, uh, the biggest source of caffeine. Some of our research and research of others have shown if you're a slow metabolizer of caffeine, in other words, you have an impaired ability to break down caffeine and get rid of it, eliminate it from the body, that you have a higher risk of a heart attack and hypertension and kidney disease with increasing coffee consumption. So, and I would say roughly half of them are slow metabolizers and they don't even know it unless they've had a genetic test. Okay, let's take a step back and talk more about the nutrigenomics test. You've done it, Sam. What was it like? Besides caffeine, what does it test for? Yes, I've done the test, and, and we can talk about the results later, but it's so simple. You just spit into a small test tube and mail it off to a lab, and a few weeks later, you get a report that tells you if you have any of the seven markers. So what are these markers? What, what do we know about them? All right, well, there's seven things that this test can monitor right now. The first three, vitamin C, folates, and omega-3 fatty acids. If you have any of the mark these markers, it means your body doesn't absorb these nutrients well, and therefore you need to eat more of them. And then there's saturated fat. This tells you if you store it or you absorb it. And these days, you don't want your body to store saturated fat. Maybe in times of starvation, you would have wanted this marker. And then it tests for sodium and caffeine. And like Ahmed was saying about caffeine, if you have this marker, it means you need to cut down or limit your consumption to decrease your risk for various cardiometabolic diseases. And lastly, there's the whole grain marker. Now we know that for everyone, eating lots of whole grains helps to prevent type 2 diabetes. But if you have this marker, you are at a higher risk, and I mean a 67% higher risk, of developing type 2 diabetes. So you really need to eat lots more whole grains, like brown rice and quinoa. Wow, this test really does give you lots of information. Well, it does, but just consider, the test right now is just the tip of the iceberg. What do you mean? Almond and his team have already developed a genetic test for gluten intolerance. This test can confirm if you have the HLA gene, which has been scientifically proven to be the most important genetic predictor of gluten intolerance. So you mean I can know for sure whether or not to modify my diet to be gluten-free, or if I've got a sore tummy just from overeating? Exactly. And I asked Ahmed, if you act on the results of his genetic test, 
and you follow the advice, can this actually make you live longer? Well, um, I like to always go back to the science and, and look to see what the science tells us. And currently, the science is telling us that if you eat according to your genes and based on what is optimal for you genetically, uh, that you will have a lower risk of a number of chronic conditions. Then not only just the quality of life should be improved, but if you extrapolate that to, to longevity, then um, I would say that the science does indicate that uh, you would be better off and would probably live longer. Well, let's face it, I still have lots of questions. So I went to go and meet with Lisa, who works with Ahmed at Nutrigenomics and is also a registered dietitian. Sure, so um, my name's Lisa Ginfrini and I'm a registered dietitian. Okay, I did mention we're new to this, right? So when I went to go and meet Lisa in her office, the audio levels were terrible. There was a air conditioner going, there was a siren outside, and some of it was just completely useless material after the fact. So bear with me here where I'm going to dip in and out of that actual conversation that I had with her and put in some questions just so it makes a bit more sense. Back to Lisa. We know intuitively and also through science that nutrition plays a really big part in developing disease and to disease prevention. So science shows it in terms of having the research. And then also intuitively, we know we eat well, we feel better, we perform better. We all know that. There's a lot of genetic tests on the market and lots of over-the-counter mail-away types. How is the nutrigenomics test different from others? Uh, nutrigenomics, the IX, the company, and other previous genetic testing kits is that they um, claim to be, or in some instances, were fairly diagnostic. Where nutrigenomics, it's a risk assessment that gives you actionable steps to then reduce that risk. So it's an actionable item. It is not diagnostic. This is not diagnostic. It is risk assessment. So you can't diagnose someone with the obesity gene, for example. Exactly. So can you give me a really inspiring story of one of your clients who has made a really concrete change to their life as a result of this test? Uh, one that I quite often use in a case study was actually one of my, I think she was the first or second client that I ever tested with nutrigenomics. And uh, she came to me, she was a, a principal at a school, a fairly high stress type of job. Um, and she was slightly overweight and had recently been put on hypertension. She wasn't very happy about that. Um, and she had tried reducing her sodium, tried losing some weight, and it really didn't get her anywhere. So she came to me, she did her test. It did, um, it did turn out that she did have the elevated risk type for sodium as well as the saturated fat. So we, we really had to work on reducing her sodium intake. And because she saw that number, she saw I need to get in 1500 because it increases, if I get more than that, my, my risk of hypertension by, I think it's 230%, um, so a huge number. Um, it was real to her. And at that point, it becomes the client. And it's all in them, and she put in so much legwork. She used to drive to, um, she lives on a border town. She used to drive over to the States to pick up some specific bread there that was lower sodium. She reduced her, her um, saturated fat intake quite a bit as well. And she went off of her, her hypertension pills and lost about 15 pounds. And so this was about two years ago. 
and um, she still has offered her pills and she still continues to maintain that weight loss. So you found out that you have the caffeine marker. So I, I have four of the elevated risk markers. Um, caffeine is the one that I really struggle with. So some things that I've done personally, I drink half decaf now. So that was an easy switch for me. I like having a big coffee in terms of volume in the morning, but I now switch to half decaf, so I get in half the amount there. What's the killer app of this test? What is the best thing about it? What do you think is the most useful thing about it? What do your clients really come home and come back to you and rave about? Well, thank you so much for helping me to sort out this particular issue. Which is that? So there's two major things that, that I find are, are most beneficial about the nutrigenomics test. So the first thing which you sort of got to is sorting through the misinformation and the conflicting information that we have. So when we look at science, science we take some things as fact where where facts in terms of science, in terms of nutrition, really they're just theories that have been shown to be um, somewhat correct throughout a lot of studies. And so sometimes we hear that coffee's good, sometimes we hear that it's bad. Now people can know, oh okay, coffee is actually bad for me. Where if they just read newspapers or listen to popular science, they don't know that. I would say the sodium one is a really, really big one. People find right off the bat when they when they know what gene they have for that and if they make the changes they can actually feel a difference and some people don't know should I restrict sodium how much should I restrict it by um, so the sodium ones a really really big one um, the second part to it that I find sort of the the big wow the most beneficial so it's knowing what's right for you first of all and um, second of all it's the motivation so this was also shown in some of Ahmed's research, but um, the, the biggest part of it that I found, especially initially with clients, is that motivation that they get from knowing what their genes are, seeing those realized risks, seeing that percent elevated risk, real numbers, it increases their motivation, it increases their understanding, it makes them want to follow the advice that's given in report, plus even advice outside of the report that I give them. It makes it really individualized and really about them, and they feel like it's not just general advice. It's not. It's an idea of what their own body tells them. Yes, it's personalized, one hundred percent. Let's go meet her. Hi, Grandma. Come in. Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hello. I'm okay. Good to see you. I'm sorry we are late. Oh yeah. We had to go home. I forgot something. Oh yeah. This is my friend Nina. Hello. Nice How to meet you? you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks. Your place looks great. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I don't know whether I'd be any good. I don't remember too much, you know. I was still finding it a bit of a challenge to wrap my head around this concept. From the moment you're born until the moment you die, you carry the information of your ideal diet with you the whole time. So I thought about this for a while and I decided, what better person to test this concept with than the oldest person I know? And as it turns out, I know a really old person. My grandmother is 106 years old. Well, actually, she was 105 when we did the recording. And I have to say, she's in pretty good health. So the question I wondered was, do my grandmother's genes and the diet she followed have anything to do with the fact that she's lived this long? I gave these results to Lisa and asked her if she could tell how old the person was who did the test. But Lisa said no, 
Our genes don't change as we age. Our genetics don't change as we age. And what, what, does, what does the test result, does it tell you anything about their current diet or what their diet has been throughout their life? No, not at all. Our genetics, for the most part, don't change based on, uh, our DNA doesn't change based on our diet. Now, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always doing funny things, aren't I, Grandma? Um, maybe now is a good time to talk through the, the, um, the test that we shared with you. Great. So what, when, you, when you see a result like that, what is, what are, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, so the, the client that we're looking at just has the one elevated gene. Would you be surprised at all if you learned that this client is 105 years old? That is really <laughs> cool. Well, I mean, she only has the one elevated risk. So just because they have that elevated risk for folate, maybe they've had a diet that's high in folate their whole life, and they've been following the recommendation. So you've always had coffee in the morning? Oh yeah, I always did. <laughs> well, a couple of cups with cream, you know. Well, it's interesting, it's my grandmother. Oh wow. And you know, she was born in pre-war, she was born in World War One, England, yeah. and you, you eat what you can, and you don't eat a lot, and you eat what's available, and it's not frilly in any way. Is it the secret to long life? It might be. Okay, Sam, what exactly did you mean that your grandmother's got the secret to long life? Well, she's been blessed with having this great genetic profile. Her only genetic weakness is that she's not great at absorbing folates. And that, coupled with some pretty modest diet throughout her life, could be why she's lived for so long and remains in relatively good health now. Okay. But I guess if that's the case, the secret to a long life is really a little disappointing. It's nothing more than a genetic lottery. Well, and some good luck, too. But even if you do turn out to have the multiple markers, like Lisa found out in her test, you can do something about it. You can change your diet so that you eat according to your genes. Eating according to your genes. So, nutrigenomics. Is it really an innovation, Sam? Well, yes, I really think it is. And here's why. It challenges the conventional wisdom that there's an ideal diet for everyone to follow to achieve optimal health. Five food groups are taught from a young age in school, and this public health message tells everyone to eat the same amount from each food groups. But nutrigenomics puts that idea on its head. It shows us that we all have our own optimal diet inside us, and we can uncover this with a drop of saliva. Yeah, that really is quite incredible. And that our genetic blueprint is immutable, so no matter what new fad diet we take on or how much exercise we do, if we've got the gene that makes us hold on to saturated fat more, well, we've got that gene. And I guess we choose to act on that information or not. Right. And here's the second reason why I think it's innovative. It's got the potential to disrupt old ways of thinking and doing. If you take this test, and if you're willing to eat according to these diet cues encoded within you, you can improve your chances of avoiding diseases and live longer. Okay, but aren't innovations supposed to have a wide reach? I mean, really touches all in some way. Who's going to take Hamid's test? Is it only those who are already into nutrition or those who can afford it? Well, that might be the case now. But I know Ahmed and Lisa envision a future where nutrigenomics is part of the public health system. So just cast your mind back to how we opened this episode with the sound of a baby crying. Yes, the newborn screening program that tests for rare genetic diseases. 
Yes, and so for Ahmed and Lisa, not only would parents learn if their child carries any rare genetic disorders, but also if that lovely little baby will need more folic acid in her diet as she grows, or she'll need to be a little more cautious around saturated fat. And as more research goes into the relationship between nutrition and our genes, we would find out more about how to feed our newborns and when to introduce certain foods. Will we have to watch out for the sweet tooth, or will she be blessed with a broccoli gene? Yep, taste preferences are genetically determined, and it's entirely possible that within a few years a test will be developed for all of this. Okay, so I'll know what to feed my baby as she grows up, and eventually she'll know her own best diet. And I guess that's good, but isn't it, well, destructive? If all of us know what our genes would have us eat, then isn't it going to challenge one of our most basic instincts just to eat and enjoy food? Well, yes. And this actually points to the third reason of what makes nutrigenomics an innovation. It has the potential to change our relationship to food and change our daily patterns. At the moment, if you want, and of course many of us do, you can just turn down the volume on all those general health messages and get on with enjoying your food. Feel guilty later. But I guess that when you have a very specific information about how your own body responds to different nutrients, it, it moves us to more it moves us to a more utilitarian approach to food. Just think of it. You could do a risk assessment on every meal based on your genetic profile. Oh Sam, that really doesn't sound like fun. But here's the thing with innovations. Although there can be mixed feelings about the good that they create versus the old ways that they put under threat, new ways of doing things can emerge, even daily things like eating. Yeah, it was like that with the invention of the egg carton. No more need to keep chickens when you can transport eggs without breaking them. But whether the egg comes from a chicken in a backyard or a store-bought egg carton, we still eat eggs. Well, most of us do. Anyway, you get the analogy. I do think that we can enjoy the benefits of nutrigenomics without losing too much of our basic relationship to food. You know, one thing I picked up from talking to Lisa is that having all this personalized information really encourages us to think more about our food in general and care more about what we are putting into our bodies. So yes, for me, since I discovered that, like my grandma, I have the folate marker, I do try to up my intake of leafy greens. I do drink a green smoothie every day. And I think that maybe our pleasure in eating meals that fit our profile can be that much more satisfying because we are eating what we are. Nicely done, Sam. And thank you for introducing me to Nutrigenomics, an innovation that does seem to get to this concept of creative destruction. It does have the potential to change our relationship to food and maybe even challenge the whole diet industry. Yes. I wonder what this means for the future of fad diets. Looking into nutrigenomics revealed the questions I have about innovation in general. These are the sorts of stories that we will explore in the egg carton. Like, if we look at new ideas, how do we judge if that thing is going to be an innovation? Nutrigenomics is still in its infancy, not widely known nor applied, and its future looks promising, but does that make it an innovation? Well, you know, Sam, we have lots of scope to explore these questions because it's our podcast. So one thing I'm intrigued with is why many past technologies and ways of doing that we thought were swept aside are still hanging around, even making a comeback, like, well, rearing your own chickens for eggs. <laughs> and I'm also interested in how old ways of doing from one culture can become innovations for another. And then we need to talk about the failure stories, you know, those prototypes that seem to have so much promise, but then they have a failure to launch. What gets in the way? Sam, there's just so many questions to think about when thinking about innovation. And that's what we'll do in the egg carton. 
We want to bring you a new take on innovation stories. We'll go and talk to the innovators, and then we'll also want to talk to people who are touched by innovations. We will see how far we can push that envelope, really figure out what innovation means, explore the feelings of both excitement and anxiety that these new things, these new ways, these new ideas provoke in all of us. Yes, we will provoke, and really that's why we decided to start this podcast, because we're a bit nerdy and we love other podcasts that present ideas and story that really get us thinking. So we want the egg carton to hopefully get you thinking, and thinking enough to share your ideas with us, challenge us, and lead us to innovation stories that you want to hear. Our program was produced by us, Samantha Hodder and Nina Wood. Oh, I... <laughs> Let's try that again. Our program today was produced by us, Samantha Hodder and Nina Woods. Special thanks today goes out to Eamon Salter on the Skype machine, our innovation scholar and expert in England, and also to Dr. Almadel Sahemi at the University of Toronto and Lisa Chinfrini from Nutrigenomics, and of course, Madge, my grandma. Thanks for the feedback from our early adopters, Jeff Siskind, Carolyn Smith, Janice Foote, Neil Morrison, and others. Come visit us at our website, theeggcarton.ca. And of course, we're on Twitter at Listen to the Egg. We'll be back next time with another take on innovation. <laughs>